0: Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. And as has been our habit this year, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are departing from the morning sermon series and focusing on a practical aspect of the Christian life in a little bit more detail. And This morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and considering the brushstrokes of heaven. Give attention to God's holy word, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for the great wisdom by which you have ordered your church, that the exalted Christ, though he sits at your right hand, far separated from our physical sight, he is yet present with us by his word and spirit, to our spiritual sight. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you indeed would give us eye salve that we might see. We pray that you would give us gold refined in the fire and that we would purchase white garments that we might be clothed through this means of grace during this time of preaching. And we ask you to do it all for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you speak to financial advisors, they're going to give you advice. About investments. Investments are a way to protect wealth and to make sure that it uh, can be handed on to the next generation. One area of investment, if you ever reach this level of wealth, I haven't and probably never will, but perhaps some of you will. One of the areas of investment that you often uh, hear some speak about is fine art. Fine art is an area of investment that retains its value. Over a long period of time, and so some may advise you should purchase these paintings or these sculptures, because they are fine art, they have value that abides. However, with any kind of investment, there 's always the danger of investing in a fake, the fake or the um, uh, the uh, false industry of producing. Replications of Fine Art is a multi-million, perhaps billion-dollar industry. There are artists out there who have perhaps mediocre talent. They have enough talent, however, to copy the great works of art. And they copy them so closely that they can be passed off as authentic. They can copy some of Rembrandt's great works. They can copy things like Starry Night from Van Gogh. And these fakes get passed around. There there are stories even of some museums that have been fooled by purchasing these fake masterpieces. So the question comes, how can you tell the difference between the authentic work of art and the fake work of art? Well, in many cases, when you're looking at the work of the great masters, Rembrandt, Van Gogh, da Vinci, all of the others... It's not in the picture itself and the colors that they use, but it's in the way that they use the brush. Some of the great masters have certain brush strokes that only they use. There was a certain unique way that they put the paint on the brush and stroked it on the canvas that marks that painting as authentic. One of the other signs of a great artist is not merely the technique that they use, but also the material that they use. One of my favorite examples of art is sculpture, specifically marble sculpture. And if you look at the work of some of the great masters like Michelangelo or some of the uh, ancient Roman greats, they were able to take dead stone, marble blocks, and through their skill as an artist, they turned these dead stones into what appears to be living flesh. Michelangelo, one of, his, one of his great masterpieces is his sculpture of Moses in the Vatican City. And if you want to look this up, it's a very famous example of his skill as an artist. His statue of Moses, Moses is holding the Ten Commandments, and he has his pinky raised. Now, there is one tiny muscle right here on the forearm that is only flexed when this pinky is raised. Michelangelo carved that muscle in his statue. So it looks like a living person. His skill was so great. Some of the other great artists are able to take a marble statue and carve it in such a way that the figure appears to be wearing a silk garment. The marble has been so crafted by the skill of the artist. Well, likewise, in the Christian life, there are many who profess to be Christians. There are many who present themselves... As the masterpieces of heaven. But heaven has certain brushstrokes. God creates his masterpieces in a certain way. And he has left undeniable marks of authentic salvation upon his people. This passage that we just read, Paul uses the word in verse 10 for a masterpiece. In fact, the word that he uses there is poema, the Greek word poema. This is where we get our word poem from. And the word poema refers to a, uh, a work of art, a product of the artist. And uh, what Paul is teaching us in this passage is that in God's masterpieces, he has left the brushstrokes of good works to mark out those who are truly his. The brushstrokes of heaven, the marks of authenticity in God's people are that they walk in the path of good works. But there's something else in this passage as well. It's not only the marks of authenticity. One of the other things that Paul is doing in this passage is praising God for his skill in producing these masterpieces. You see, Michelangelo was able to take a dead stone and make it appear to be a living stone human. God Almighty does an even greater work of art by taking dead sinners and through his son, turning them into obedient sons. Specifically, what we're going to see in this passage is that though sons of disobedience by nature, God, through union with Christ, makes his people sons of obedience by nature. Though sons of disobedience by nature, God, through union with Christ, makes his people sons of obedience by nature. We're going to see two things in this passage. The first is sons of disobedience, verses 1 through 3. The second is sons of obedience, verses 4 through 10. Sons of obedience, verses 1 through 3. Sons of disobedience, uh, I'm sorry, sons of disobedience, verses 1 through 3. And sons of obedience, verses 4 through 10. And we begin with sons of disobedience. As we begin looking at our passage, you'll notice in verse 1, if you have a King James or New King James, uh, the words he made alive are italicized. When you see in your English Bible words that are italicized, that means they're not there in the original Greek. They've been added to make the English smoother. In the original Greek passage of this, Paul doesn't write those words at this point. He writes them later on in verse 5. This has been added to make the English smoother, but I think it takes away from what Paul is trying to do in this passage. Now, here's one of the instances where I think the ESV has done it a little bit better than the New King James. The ESV doesn't have these words. And what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 3 is simply describing the death that we all have through sin. And he begins by saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins. This death in trespasses and sins refers to spiritual death, which will eventually lead to physical death. The reason that our physical bodies will die, the reason that our entire person will die, is because of trespasses and sins. Now, one of the great tragedies of this spiritual death... Is that just like dead men, when we are in our sins, we can't tell that we are dead. Dead men do not know that they are dead. Dead men do not know that they are in the state of decay and rotting because of their death. Likewise, also spiritually, those who are still in their sins do not know that they are dead. They are like lifeless bodies lying on the ground, spiritually, unaware of their condition. But Paul goes on to describe this death in sin, and he describes it in two ways. He describes our death in sin, that we are dead by nurture and dead by nature. We are dead by nurture and dead by nature. Now, some of you may be aware of this distinction that I'm using here. In psychology and um, criminology, as people study why men do things, why do the criminals commit crimes? Why do these certain groups seem to be wealthier than others? There's a debate. And the debate is between those who say it all has to do with nurture. It all has to do with the environment that they're raised in. The reason that the poor commit more crimes in this country is because they come from a poor, impoverished environment. Their nurture leads them to it. On the other side, there are those who say that it has to do with nature. It has to do with who they are in their very being. And this is a debate that's been going on for some time. Well, what Paul is telling us here is that it's not nurture or nature, it's both. And he begins with nurture. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, you walked in your sins according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. Notice that he's describing the environment within which men live in sin. He says, firstly, that it is the course of this world. When Paul uses this phrase, when he speaks about this world, he's talking about the world system as it exists outside of Christ, the way things happen now in the broader society outside of salvation. And notice that he says it's simply the course. It's, It's the pattern of life that everybody outside of Christ follows. It's just the way things are. They live in sin. They follow the pattern of sin. This is the context in which. But there's not only the context of the world around us, there's also the context of the ruler of this world. Notice what Paul goes on to say next. He says, You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul here is describing Satan. This is a description of the great enemy of God and of man. He is a prince of the power of the air. Notice that Paul calls him a prince. This indicates a couple of things. First, Satan does have real authority. Satan does exercise a real influence in the world today. And this authority that he exercises is an authority that he exercises in the sons of disobedience. You know, when we bring up the topic of Satan, when the, when the New Testament brings it up, we're often tempted to think about Satan and his activities in the way that Hollywood would have us think about it. We, we tend to think about pentagrams and goat heads and bloody sacrifices in dark corners in the basements of the centers of power. But notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that Satan's power is exercised, is evident wherever there is disobedience to God. So when somebody tells a lie, that is Satan's authority being exercised. When somebody commits a sin, Satan's kingdom is being manifested. Satan's power is power expressed in the sons of disobedience. Whenever a sin, a crime, or any type of wickedness is committed, Satan's kingdom is being manifested. And this is what Paul says he does. Notice also, Satan's power, though it's real, is unjust. His power is unrighteous. Satan, when he tempted Adam and Eve, usurped authority over the world of men. Satan is the tyrant. Tyranny is defined as someone who rules unjustly, without submission to God. That's what a tyrant is. Somebody who rules outside the laws of the land, outside the laws of God, without submitting his rule and reign to God Almighty. That's tyranny. It goes all the way back to the Greeks. What we see in this passage is that Satan, as a prince, rules unjustly. He is the first and foremost of all tyrants. He continues describing Satan's word and calls him a spirit who is at work. Brothers and sisters, I I want you to be very aware that death in sin, those who are still living in their sins, are living under the reign of Satan, the tyrant of unrighteousness. I want you to be aware that there is a spiritual battle going on right now in the world, in your hearts, in this room right now. There are spiritual things happening under the command of Satan, or as we're going to learn later, under the command of Christ. These are the real, uh, these are the foundational realities of what is going on in the world of men. The foundational reality is not Republican and Democrat. The foundational reality is not big tech and transhumanism. The foundational reality of all of life is sin or righteousness. Satan or Christ. And so we need to take a lesson from this. Especially if there are some in this room who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if you are not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a slave of Satan. You are under his tyranny. You are part of his kingdom, and he will whip you and drive you into more and more disobedience until finally hell swallows you. That's what we learn in the next verse. Not only are we dead by nurture, we are dead by nature. And the great tragedy of being in our sins is that we are under the rule and reign of Satan the tyrant and we want it that way. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. Among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Notice that Paul uses this language of lusts of the flesh. The word lust in the scriptures doesn't refer to Um, sexual desire only. It it refers to any desire that is inordinate. It refers to a desire that is disordered. And Paul calls these desires the lusts of the flesh. Now we learn in Galatians chapter 5 what the flesh is. We learn also in Romans chapter 8 what the flesh is. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. So we can have a good definition of what Paul means, by the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Many have made mistakes about the flesh, Uh, in particular the monastics. They used to think that the flesh meant the physical body. And so what we have to do as Christians is deny the physical body in order to be holy. So they will fast excessively, they take vows of celibacy and poverty, they wear uh, wool sacks and beat their body because they thought flesh meant physical body. That's not what it means. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 6. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Notice carefully. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when Paul says that we walked the course of our lives fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, he means that we fulfilled our own desires to disobey God. We indulged our desires to break God's commandments. When God says you shall worship me alone, we create other things to worship. When God says that you shall not take my name in vain, we take his name in vain. When God says you shall honor your father and mother and respect all of the authorities above you and love and nurture all of those who are under your authority. We usurp authority or disrespect those who are over us, etc., etc., all through the Ten Commandments. So the lusts of the flesh refers to our own desires to sin, our own self-indulgence. Paul goes on to talk about walking in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, meaning this rebellion against God, and of the mind. When Paul speaks about the desires of the mind, he's speaking about the human soul operating independently. All throughout the scriptures, at the end of the book of Judges, you find that the author writes, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, uh, earlier on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses will say, you shall not all do as you do today. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. You remember what Satan first tempted our parents with. You shall determine good and evil. Your mind is sufficient to guide your life. And so Paul describes here fulfilling the desires of the mind, of our own intellect, outside of God's word. And this is who we are by nature. Notice what Paul says at the very next phrase. Because we lived this way, because we were under Satan's tyranny, willfully, we were by nature children of wrath. You know, uh, at our house, we recently had a rat problem. Uh, I've, I've shared my shed with you all before I built this shed. And apparently the rat thinks I did a good job because he made a home under the shed. And my wife saw the rat, and what do you think her response was? We need to be merciful and kind to the rat. No, that was not her response. We need to kill it and kill it now with poison and chemicals. Because rats by nature don't belong in your homes. Rats by nature need to be destroyed. What Paul is saying here about sinners is that by nature, those who are dead in sin deserve to be punished with wrath. The only solution for sin is destruction from the Holy One. That is the only way sin is dealt with. And Paul is saying that we, all of us, Jew, Gentile, covenant child, or one who was redeemed as an adult, everybody on earth, we all were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. And so Paul describes... These sons of disobedience. He describes, as it were, the block of marble that God Almighty has chosen to produce his masterpiece upon. There's a very practical use for us here. Just considering sons of disobedience and what our sins deserve. Your sins are no small matter. However small you may think your sins are, and we're very good at minimizing our sins, aren't we? Oh no, that wasn't a rat, that was a mouse. That wasn't really a mouse. that was a toy mouse. That wasn't a toy mouse. It was a picture of a mouse, when all the while it's not a rat at all. It's a vicious tiger that wants to devour you. Your sins are no small matter. Your sins put you into allegiance with Satan. Satan is the one who wants you to sin. Satan is the one who rules over sinners. And fulfilling the desires of your flesh and of your mind is the sign of those who are under Satan's tyranny. How often do we hear the message in our world today? Follow your heart. There's a whole generation of Americans who have been raised on Disney fairy tales Where the story is, animals talk to you, and what they tell you is, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Do what you want. You can be anything that you want to be. This is Satan catechizing the world and teaching them that your heart's desire is the only thing that matters. How careful ought we to be about our own hearts? How guarded should we be about our own thoughts? How diligent should we be to, as the book of Proverbs says, keep your heart, for out of it spring the issues of life. Finally, know that your sins deserve wrath. You see, sometimes the gospel is misunderstood by us. Sometimes we think the gospel means my sins deserve forgiveness. No, they don't. Your sins deserve wrath. And what's even more, the way Paul phrases this, he doesn't talk merely about our sins deserving wrath. He says that we deserve wrath. We in ourselves deserve to be destroyed by God. We are in ourselves by nature and nurture sons of disobedience, children of wrath. But the great work of God in Christ is that he takes these sons of disobedience and transforms them into sons of obedience. And he does that first off by nurture. And now we move into verse 4, and we see how it is that God nurtures us to become sons of obedience. Remember what I said about nurture. Nurture is the environment within which somebody grows up. And that has a very powerful effect upon how they'll, they'll develop later on. In some, verses four through seven, Paul is describing for us the nurture that God the Father gives to us, and, and this nurture is simply adoption through Christ. You notice the language that Paul used in verses one through three: "Sons of disobedience, obedience, children of wrath." Now in verse four, he shows us this transition into what it means not to be a son of disobedience, but a son of obedience. Not children of wrath, but heirs of eternal glory. These are all the results of the adoption. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 1, that God's predestination, chapter 1 verse 5, God has loved us and blessed us with everything in Christ Jesus, verse 5, having predestined us to the adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ. And now he describes what adoption really means. And the first thing that adoption really means is that God loved you. Think about this. You who deserve wrath, you who in God's house are worse than the rat under my shed, God loved you. It says that God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, God shows mercy to sinners because he loves sinners. It's not the other way around. God doesn't show mercy and then begin to love. Everything that God does for sinners is out of his great love towards us. Because he loves, he shows you mercy. Just like a father with his own children. Perhaps you've raised children. I'm going to take a wild guess and say you are all children and have had parents. And even the worst of parents has some mercy for their own child, has some compassion upon their faults. Why? Because that child is theirs. That child belongs to them. This is my child. I love him or her, and so I'm merciful to him or her. Likewise, God has loved his children, and because he's loved his children, he's showered mercy upon them, verse 5, such that even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He first described us as dead in sin. Now he's going to describe what it means to be alive in righteousness. And the first thing that he tells us, it comes from God's love, And it is realized, it is expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. He made you alive with Christ. What is Paul speaking about here? Well, go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 19. Paul's really hard to, to break in half. His sentences are so gloriously long. But at the end of chapter 1, Paul begins to pray for the church. And he says, I want to pray for you so that you will understand the magnitude of the gospel. And several things he prays for in verse 19, he says, And I also want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, in heavenly places. God made you alive in the resurrection of Christ. The same almighty power that was exercised in bringing Christ out of the grave is the same Almighty power that is operating in your life to make you alive from sin. Now there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. First. In principle, all of the elect were made alive at the resurrection of Christ. In principle, salvation is now made possible for all of the elect. But salvation does not become yours until you believe. You do not begin to enjoy salvation until you believe. In the gospel. Notice what Paul said. Verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is how God applies the benefits of Christ to you. And so even though from all eternity God had elected in love a certain group of people and from all eternity he had planned to send his only begotten son to pay the penalty for their sins, those who have been elected in Christ do not actually enjoy Christ until they believe in Christ. In fact, we can think about it this way. And Paul's going to say this later on. Our belief in Christ is also part of God's power. Your ability to believe in Christ is God working in your life. And it's through that that he brings Christ to bear upon you. You see, Michelangelo chose his block of marble. And in Michelangelo's mind, he had the plan already laid out. But it's not until he takes hammer and chisel and begins banging on the marble that the marble begins to take shape. That's what believing in Christ is. And that's what Paul's going to lay out here. When we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul will repeat this later on. And we need to understand what grace is. Grace is God's favor towards his children. You see, in chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3, Paul had described the sons of disobedience. And what they received from God is wrath. Now he's describing the sons of obedience made alive in Christ, and what they receive from God is grace. They receive favor. They receive countenance from their father. By grace you have been saved. Now he goes on. Notice what he says in verse 6. Not only were you made alive in Christ, but he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that throughout this whole passage, everything comes to you through union with Christ. Christ died and rose again. Through union, you died and rose again. Christ was exalted to the right hand, and you through union are exalted to the right hand with him. You are currently sitting in heavenly places at the right hand of your father in Christ. Now, why is this important? Remember your condition before Christ. You were slaves of the tyrant. Now in Christ, you have been exalted and you now have authority over the tyrant. You rule over Satan. Your position is greater than the position of the serpent. What did the Lord say to Adam and Eve? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16 verse 17. He's concluding his writing to the church in Rome, and listen very carefully to what he says. Now I urge you brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Avoid false teachers. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, indulging the desires of the mind and of the flesh. They teach their own thoughts, and they feed their own stomachs. By smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Notice that the church, which holds to the true doctrine and walks in the path of obedience, is what God uses to crush Satan. You are seated at the right hand with authority and power over Satan in Christ. Now, at this point, I want to I help your hearts and give you a practical application. This is a critical element in fighting temptation. Because, you know, if, you've, if you're like me, you're still fighting your flesh. Temptations still come to you, either from your own heart or from outside messages. And it's often easy to think, Well, this is just who I am. I'm no better than this. I have no power to fight against this. I can't deliver myself from this. I must just be a sinner. But what Paul is telling you is that in Christ, by faith in Christ, you are better than that. You have authority over that. You are not a slave of Satan in Christ. You have the freedom in Christ to reject the temptation. There's a great line in um, the Martin Luther movie from been a couple decades now. But the, in the Martin Luther movie, Martin Luther is preaching in the church and he talks about being tempted by Satan. And he says, sometimes Satan will come to you and, and tell all kinds of lies to you. You're a sinner. You, you're guilty. You should feel ashamed. You deserve wrath. He says, but the Christian man can respond to those temptations and say, what of it? I have a Savior who died for me. I have a Savior who lives for me. I have a Savior who bled for me, and all of those sins are forgiven and wiped away. You see, Christ is a greater prince than Satan. And in Christ, you share that authority. You have the right to tell Satan, go away. Get behind me. Even as Peter says in his letter, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So Paul says you're seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. He says God has done all of this, loved you, made you alive through the resurrection of Christ, seated you in heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me just put it to you this way. You know, artists, uh, either rightly or wrongly, produce their masterpieces to receive praise. They, they produce their masterpieces to receive um, honor and respect from the world around them. They want to be praised for their skill. And at one level, that's proper. Somebody produces a great work of art, you praise them and thank them. Notice what Paul is saying about God. God produces these masterpieces. God saves sinners and brings you into union with Christ so that He can show the world how merciful He really is, how kind He really is to His children, how much greater grace is than your sin. That's the whole reason God's doing what He's doing in your life. And so when you sin... Brother and sister, go back to Christ. Believe in Christ. That's what Paul's going to say now. He's described the nurture or the environment in which Christians are raised. And that environment is the love of the Father through the Son. And now he describes the nature of those who are saved. Verse 8, he says, it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, this is a very famous verse to you, I'm sure. There's debate about what this actually means. Is Paul saying faith is the gift of God? Or is he saying this whole sort of uh, architecture of salvation is the gift of God? I think what Paul is saying, based on the grammar... Paul is not saying that faith is the gift of God. What he's saying is that grace by faith, that whole idea, is the gift of God. Now, that includes faith. We know from other passages, God is the one who gives faith. Paul will tell Timothy that the the minister of the Lord must be patient if perhaps God will grant them repentance. God is the one who grants repentance and faith. What Paul is saying here is that this whole program Of being saved by grace through faith is God's gift to you. And so, what does this mean for your life? Well, this means that your whole way of operating, the heart of what a Christian is, is that it is somebody who believes God's promises. It's someone who believes that God is merciful, it's someone who believes that God loves his children in Christ. It's someone who believes that in Christ I'm alive. In Christ I reign as a prince with him. It's somebody who believes these things. Now our culture, and sadly the church today, has made faith far too easy. And part of this is because many people who are in the church today haven't ever suffered. You see, when you are buried with guilt, When you have been uh, attacked by Satan's kingdom, when your sins seem to come out of the ground like the weeds do during the springtime, and you are trying to fight against them and you fall over and over again, you know how hard it is to believe that God is merciful. How hard it is to believe that God loves sinners. How hard it is to believe that we who are here in the middle of rural Virginia are seated in the heavenly places with the King of kings and Lord of lords. That you, if you are in Christ, have more authority than Joseph Biden, George Soros, and all of those who would destroy the world. You are greater than them in Christ. Pretty unbelievable, isn't it? Pretty incredible to lay hold of these things. But you see, Paul says that these, this grace, this favor, is yours by faith. Faith is the thing that you must exercise. Faith is the thing that God tests in your life. Faith is the thing that saves you. Peter says in his first letter that you rejoice in Christ, though if your faith is tested, which is more precious than gold that you may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is the most important thing. Verse 9, he finishes this out and says that you've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, before we start talking about good works directly, we need to sort of unpack verse 9 a little bit and, and what is happening here. What Paul is telling us is that God's way of salvation for sinners is that it is all by grace through faith. It is nothing of your own works. Whatever you do does not save you. You can do nothing to earn God's favor. Your best prayers, your best obedience, your best Uh, preaching of the gospel, your best loving of your wife, your best keeping of the Sabbath. Whatever you do cannot bring salvation to you. In fact, God has ordained, I'm not going to save you through your own works. I'm not going to justify you through your works. I'm not going to adopt you into my family because of your works. Because if it was according to our works, we would have reason to boast. We would have reason to praise ourselves but God's order is that we should praise him for his grace and why is this well now Paul then goes to talk about good works the reason God has ordained it this way is because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Paul now speaks about the nature of those who are the sons of obedience. And what he says here, when he uses the language of created in Christ Jesus, he's speaking about being given a new nature, a new heart. You have been recreated in Christ to be God's workmanship, to be his masterpiece, producing good works. You have been ordained to walk in the path of good works. And as you walk on that path, you walk in the context of the Father's love for you. And so, as it says in the book of Proverbs, the righteous man falls seven times, but the Lord picks him up. In the context of God's family, you as His children will fail. But God is rich in mercy upon those who love Him. God is abundant in grace to those who are in Christ because... He wants you to produce good works. He wants you to have a life of abundant fruit. He wants to display in your life the brushstrokes of his masterpiece. You remember what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your theology so shine before men. No, that's not what he says. Let your rhetoric so shine before men. That's not what he says. He says, let your good deeds so shine before men that they glorify your Father in heaven. Good works are the duty of Christians. Christians are commanded to produce good works. But notice the context within which these good works should be produced. The only context within which they can be produced. By faith in Christ and seeking the glory of God, in obedience to his law. That's what a good work is. By faith in Christ, seeking God's glory, in obedience to God's commandments. Now, I want to focus only on one category of good works. And I want to encourage you in this way. Turn to Haggai, the minor prophet. Haggai, the minor prophet... Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai is right before Zechariah. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the minor prophets of the returned exiles. And these returned exiles have been brought back to Jerusalem and they've been commanded to build the Lord's house. Now, I want you to think about the context here a little bit because it's very similar to our context. At this time in Jerusalem, God's house had been destroyed. The entire culture had been wiped out. The kingdom of Israel was gone. The kingdom of Judah was gone. The whole religious system had been deleted from the map. And now God, in bringing his people back and rebuilding them, commands them to build God's house. Look at what he says. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come that uh, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink and are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves and no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord." You looked for much, and indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, and on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." Notice what the Lord is telling the people. Your economy is in shambles. Your government is a wreck. And your culture is vacuous. Because you are more concerned about your own houses and not the house of the Lord. Think about America in the early 21st century. The economy is a wreck. The culture is vacuous. And people all seem to sense... That this system we have enjoyed on this continent is all coming to an end. And what the Lord is telling us is, I'm doing this because you've neglected my house. You have neglected my worship. You have not contributed to the work of the Lord's house. You have an opportunity to contribute to the work of the Lord's house. We're putting out a service survey in your bulletins. There are opportunities for you in this house to serve. Now, I want to exhort you as the sons of God. Don't hear me lashing you as the slaves of Satan. But I want to exhort you as God's own sons. He has loved you from all eternity. And showered the mercy of heaven into your hearts. He's made you alive in Christ. And if you want to do something to save this country. If you want to do something to save Lynchburg. And make it someplace worthy of living. Contribute to God's house. Serve in his church. Find ways to contribute to the life and operation of God's house. You know, sadly, one of the great sins of our day is very similar to the sins of the returned exiles. They were not idolaters. They didn't worship false gods. They were complacent in the worship of Jehovah. All throughout the minor prophets, the prophets are rebuking them, saying, you don't care about God's house. You bring lame sacrifices. You worship God with the worst part of your time and your wealth. And what God is reminding us in this passage is that it ought to be the other way. We ought to give our best to God's service. And as we do that, he promises later on in this chapter that he will shower the blessings of heaven upon you. You contribute and sacrifice to labor for God's house. Wait and see what he does in your own houses. Wait and see the blessings he pours upon your house. Well, as we've learned in Ephesians chapter 2, the masterpieces of God are his people. And the sign, the, the token of authenticity in God's works of art is that they produce good works. They walk in the way of God's commandments and they walk trusting in Christ, not trusting in their own works, but trusting in the grace of the Lord Jesus to make them acceptable in the Father's sight. And everything they do is for the glory of God, who has loved us and saved us with such a great salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the glories of the gospel in the Lord Jesus, to see how alive we are. And that we do reign as kings with him even now, seated in heavenly places. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to walk in the path of your commandments, producing good works. For we see, O Lord, the signs of your judgment upon our land. We see that you are blowing everything down in this country that is not based upon your word and seeking your glory in the Lord Jesus. We ask you, O Lord, to strengthen our hands for this word. For it is only in you that we find salvation. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.